Hey, Jordan, you want to hear a fun fact? Uh, sure. Caffeine involved in a coffee bean with some of the greatest antioxidants on the planet. Wow, that's pretty interesting. Let, let, let me cut you off right there. I wasn't done. You see, green tea, another great source of caffeine, evolved with an entirely different set of antioxidants as well. Is this another brain fuel ad? Uh, yeah, it is. Oh, I mean, well, in that case, brain fuel takes the best of both worlds without the roast or heat that may reduce potency and increase toxicity. It support, it's supportive blends of fuels, antioxidants, and brain-boosting additives create a new paradigm for the effective delivery of caffeine. Not to mention, it is the best-tasting drink I've personally had in a while. To support the heroes who push society forward, challenge the status quo, and initiate a better tomorrow by providing them with the fuel to actualize their best self. If you want to help support our podcast and try Brain Fuel, use code DOME for 20% off your order at BrainFuel.com. That's code DOME, all caps, D-O-M-E, at BrainFuel.com, B-R-E-I-N-F-U-E-L.com for 20% off your order. Welcome back to another episode of the Off the Dome podcast. I'm here with a very special guest. She is an award-winning journalist, uh, and she was uh, known as being a writer of the Chicago Tribune, covered the 90s Last Stand Chicago Bulls, and uh, currently uh, is a teacher at Northwestern University and also was an author of the acclaimed book, State, the story of the 1979 uh, Niles, Niles West uh, women's basketball team. I'm here with a very special guest, uh, the great Melissa Isaacson. Uh, Melissa, it's an honor for you to be on the podcast. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to have you on. And uh, you may not want to disclose this little fun fact, but my dad and your husband are cousins. So that pretty, <laughs> much, so that pretty much makes us family. It absolutely does. Absolutely. When you share as many holidays as we have, uh, it seals the deal. <laughs> absolutely. Um, I, hope you, uh, I hope you don't lose any jobs over that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hey, I'll keep it under wraps, you know. Until you get really, really famous, then I'll blab it around. <laughs> <laughs> right now, it's, 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 I, I tell selected, selected friends, and, and yeah, the bigger you get, the more people, right? right? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, we've spent many holidays together, a lot of uh, Passovers and a few bar and bat mitzvahs, and I've watched your career blossom, and I read your book, State, again the other day. It was a fantastic book. Congratulations. Uh, and I've watched your career grow, and now you're a seasoned journalist, professor, author, one of the most acclaimed writers in Chicago Tribune, first ever female writer for the Chicago Tribune. Were these always professional goals in your sort of planning or did it just occur like just naturally? Well, I think I wanted to be a journalist from a pretty early age. I mean, in high school, I, I wanted to work for the school paper. Before that, I was enamored by Watergate and, and all things journalism as a kid and, um, you know, had sort of that thought in my mind that I wanted to write in some way. Uh, in high school, it was difficult to be on teams and be on school paper. So I didn't 
But the first chance I had in college, I, uh, you know, I started writing for the paper. I wrote for area papers on vacations, uh, weekly papers, and worked with Sun-Times part-time. Um, and so, yes, it was quickly a dream. But was it, you know, I mean, obviously, the, you can't foresee uh, anything. Like, I wasn't the first woman writer ever. I was the first woman to cover the Bulls and cover the Bears for the Tribune. There, was, there were other women before me. Um, but to cover a team like the Bulls, obviously, I didn't know about Michael Jordan. And, you know, he wasn't on the Bulls when I was in college. But all of that stuff um, was was certainly, you know, kind of a far away dream to work for a major metropolitan newspaper, um, to be a, a sports reporter. Um, that certainly was something that I tried to plan for early on. Um, but yeah, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't happen overnight. There were a lot of, uh, I was lucky enough to get a job with a Gannett paper out of college, uh, but it was a smallish paper, uh, Florida Today in Cape Canaveral. Um, now it's uh, called, just called Today. Um, I think it was 200,000 circulation. So it was considered like a medium sized paper. So it wasn't the teeniest, tiniest, and it was a great stepping stone from there to um, to USA Today to the Orlando Sentinel. So I had a lot of you know things break my way, and uh, and and yeah, it worked out better than I could have hoped. That's incredible. Um, while you've covered all genres of sports, you are. It's has it been hard to top the glory days of the Bulls dynasty. Walk me through the experience of covering the 90s Bulls. And for those that don't know, you were appeared in episodes six and seven of The Last Dance. Who were some mm -hmm. of your favorite players you interviewed during the whole 90s Bulls dynasty? Yeah. Um, no, that was, believe me, even as it was going on, I recognized how incredibly special it was. I certainly uh, enjoyed it as hard, you know, as hard as I worked. Uh, it would be impossible to not realize that you're watching something special um, when you're seeing Michael Jordan on a nightly basis in his prime. So it was incredible just, just seeing that team at that level um, play, you know, hundred games a season when I was covering them because that was, uh, they were in the playoffs every year. So it was, you know, an average over a hundred games a season. So that part was, was phenomenal just seeing them. And then they happen to be a really good group of guys. I mean, Michael was uh, as easy to work with as, as a superstar probably ever was or will be. I mean, I think people find that hard to believe, but he really, really understood how important it was um, to get along with the media. And he, um, you know, he, he had a great deal of patience uh, with the whole process. There was very seldom that he tried to dodge us. He talked to every single reporter, no matter what, you know, size newspaper or uh, outlet or, or uh, you know, station they were with. Um, he would stand around his locker, even, you know, when he went through controversies, um, he always faced the, the press. Um, so I really respected that a lot uh, of him. I mean, guys like Bill Cartwright, I, I grew close to, um, you know, after the beat, I kept in touch with him. He was terrific. You know, Paxson and I have remained friendly. Um, and, uh, you know, I enjoyed Horace, I enjoyed Scotty, 
Uh, Steve Kerr and I, you know, became very friendly. I, I really enjoyed him. Judd Bushler. I mean, all those guys, Will Purdue, Bill Wennington. There really wasn't anyone during my years covering that I could say I had to kind of watch out. You know, I wouldn't steer clear because that wasn't my job, but, you know, just kind of be suspicious of or nervous around at all. They respected me. Um, I certainly respected them. And it was, it was a ton of fun. It really, really was. It was crazy. And I was young enough to, um, to throw myself into it and all the hours and all the time it took. I mean, I had kids, started having kids. Um, my first daughter, Amanda, uh, in 95. So we it was already had, you know, three championships, you know, so to speak, not under my belt, but you know, um, the Bulls did. So by that time, you know, it was a different experience with kids covering, covering the various teams, but it was, it was tremendous. And I still consider it a highlight of my career. Did, did I, you know, reach those heights, I guess, in terms of the subjects I was covering. I mean, the Bears were very mediocre for most of the time I was covering them, although I covered them in the Super Bowl. Um, you know, I, I, the Blackhawks were not my beat, but I covered their Stanley Cups. Uh, I did not cover baseball as a beat, but I covered the White Sox World Series. I covered the Cubs. So I got to experience all that. That was certainly incredibly exciting. Um, I, I did, you know, a lot of Chicago Sky stuff over the years at the very beginning when they went to the finals the first time. Um, so I, I really got lucky. And then I went to ESPN after the Tribune. Um, and I had been covering tennis all along throughout my career. So I, I probably covered 20, 25 Wimbledon's, U.S. Opens. Um, and that remained really fun with ESPN I, and the Tribune. I got to do a bunch of Olympic games. Um, so that was certainly tremendous. Uh, you know, I've covered pretty much every championship uh, there has been, you know, in North America um, and some abroad, the British Open, uh, you know, the U.S. Open and golf and tennis, a lot of different golf um, tournaments. So I can't say that I didn't get to experience really cool stuff and in, in very high levels of, of play um, besides the Bulls. I did, but the Bulls were a singular experience that would never be matched for sure. I would be remiss if I didn't mention how you appeared in episode six, and I believe you appeared in episode seven too, if I'm not mistaken, of the pandemic mm -hmm. hit the last dance, one of the greatest sports documentaries ever. And it was the thing that we all watched during the quarantine. From your perspective, was this an accurate portrayal of MJ Pippen and the Bulls management? Oh, absolutely. Um the thing that was interesting, and, and I got to know uh, Jason Hare, the director, very well. He came and spoke, spoke to my classes. I still talk to him. I really respect him, and I saw the work that he did, and, and he was terrific. Um, he, uh, you know, um, when, when I talked to him, I was very excited for, for, to see the documentary, but I didn't necessarily think that there was going to be any surprises of any kind. You know, I, I thought, well, you know, I'll watch, of course, and, and, and I was looking forward to it, but I really did, couldn't imagine that they would tell me anything I didn't know. And he really did show me a lot of different things, a lot of little things, a lot of sides to people that I didn't see. So that part was really cool. Uh, I never doubted the veracity of, of it at all. I mean, you always have a point of view when you 
um, do a documentary or, or write a story in a newspaper or magazine, whatever, there's always a certain um, point of view that you bring to it, the people you choose and how you interview them. Um, so, so it wasn't going to be exactly my experience in, in covering the Bulls, but uh, yes, I think he did a very good job. And I think um, entertainment wise, it was terrific. I was, you know, absolutely spellbound on the edge of my couch, you know, after the first five minutes of it, um, more so than I thought I would be. And, um, and there was nothing I would disagree with at all. You know, I mean, he, he certainly did his research and uh, nothing shocked me, but nothing, um, you know, uh, struck me as, as inaccurate in any way. You also cover the Chicago Bears. What were your best memories aside from covering them during the cold in the witty city? Because football season, it's a, it's very chilly, especially in Chicago. It's not, it's a, takes great dedication being on the sidelines in the cold. Did you, did you, um, what did you talk to me about that experience? Yeah. Well, fortunately I was in the press box, so I never probably suffered um, very much. Um, probably more heat in Bourbonnais and, and Platteville in the summer. Um, and, and certainly, you know, covering practice, there were cold days um, for sure. But yeah, no, I look at, no matter what you say, you could be a huge Cubs fan. You could talk about how, how unbelievable it was when they won the World Series. And you could talk about, you know, the, the three Stanley Cups and you can talk about the six NBA titles. Um, but it'll always be a Bears town. It always has been, always will be. And if you talk to any um, even remotely respectable uh, sports journalist in Chicago has been here for more than five minutes, um, they will all agree that it's a Bears town without hesitation. So from that standpoint, covering the biggest beat in town was, was amazing, whether they were bad or mediocre or almost good or whatever. Um, I didn't enjoy, I enjoyed it on one level because I loved football. Um, my father had season tickets. I barely missed a game going in my childhood, and I certainly never missed watching a game. So I was a fan, as most Chicago journalists start out to be. Um, I didn't enjoy the players as much as I did the Bears. I mean, it's a Bulls, rather. It's a smaller group. You get to know them better. I think, in general, football players are a little less um, – friendly around uh, the press and they weren't as welcoming to women um, as the Bulls were. So it wasn't always a friendly locker room, but there were certainly enough players that I enjoyed dealing with. Um, you know, I, Jim Miller was a quarterback for, for several years that I covered the team and he was wonderful. Eric Kramer was a quarterback at the beginning. Uh, I really enjoyed the offensive linemen, guys like Andy Heck. I mean, uh, you know, they were great. And, and Charles Tillman, and um, there were certainly, certainly guys that I got along with Robbie Gould and, um, you know, and just because I love football and that's where I would be anytime anyway on a Sunday is watching the Bears. You know, it was a great thing to be, uh, in, you know, it was a great thing to have my vantage point. Uh, let me ask you a subject about the NFL currently about the NFL concussion protocol. Obviously, back in the day, back years ago, the NFL wasn't taking a strong enough stance on concussion protocol, and it was kind of lackadaisical care among the players, just throwing them into the, into the games without, like, actual care, like, for their, for their concussion, for their head injuries. 
Do you think the NFL right now is taking a strong enough stand with the concussion protocol? You know, I can't tell you, Matthew, that um, I'm, I'm up on the very latest protocol. Um, you know, I think the NFL has never had a good record where that, where that goes. I mean, you know, by protocol, I don't know if you mean just in general, um, when guys get hurt uh, in a game and, and sending them back in. I mean, it, it, it seems to me without, again, um, knowing, you know, exactly what goes on in, in later years, in the last few years, um, it seems to me like they do what they have to do. But, you know, is it still a violent game that's absolutely horrible for the human body in every way and especially for the human brain? Like, absolutely, you know. It's easy for me to say I didn't have a, a kid who played football, but I, I really think I would never let my, my child play. Um, you know, even if they were talented, I wouldn't let them play tackle football. I think it's a horrible, horrible game in that respect. Uh, and so. Um, yeah, I mean, it's in the NFL was complicit for many years in in setting guys up to have CTE. And, you know, I see I see guys like McMichael and, you know, older bears who are still suffering, suffering greatly, not still, but, you know, getting into these years where they're experiencing um, the effects of football. So did they know that they were um you know, that that was sort of what they were in for, that that's uh, what football's all about. Sure, you can argue that. They're young and felt like they were invulnerable. Um, but it's still very sad to see, you know, the damage that it's done. I love the piece that you wrote about John Mullen, a former colleague of yours. What was it like working with him, uh, with the Bears, uh, him being the editor, and sort of essentially your teammate? Uh, talk to me what it was like. No, oh, I mean, he's one of my absolute best friends. I, yeah, I miss him terribly. Um, you know, he's been gone about a month or so, and I still want to pick up the phone and call him every day. Um, you know, he was a guy who played college football, played high school football. He knew the game in a way that I didn't know. Um, and he was very generous in the way he shared that knowledge with me. Um, but then I had skills that he hadn't developed um, at that point. He did not start as a journalism student in college and he wasn't I didn't have as much experience uh, working for newspapers as I did actually so I think we are perfect complement to each other because there were things that I did on the writing and reporting end that I helped um, sort of make him better and there were certainly ways that he helped make me better um, the greatest thing about him was that his way with players and his way with uh, front office um, people and coaches they all just really really liked him because they respected him he didn't see them as just another, um, you know, notch on his belt to get us another story, uh, another quote. And they, they saw that in him. That's not always easy to do. It's easy to talk about, but when you're in a locker room trying to keep your head above water and make sure that you compete with your, you know, with your, uh, you know, fellow uh, newspapers and, and, you know, opposing beats, um, it's, it's hard to not, uh, it's hard to not travel with the pack. And he was very good at not doing that. You know, we would make fun of him good naturedly because he was the guy who would be talking to the third string offensive guard while everyone else was chasing down Cade McNown or somebody. Um, but meanwhile, or Jay Cutler, but meanwhile, he would be the one to get the best stories because one day that third string guard became uh, the starting guard and he had insight into not just that guard, but that guard 
was often the best friend of the quarterback and he would talk to him about that. So he wasn't trying to, that wasn't his point in getting to be, um, to develop these different sources, but it served him really well. And, and I just really admired his independence, his, um, his kindness, his generosity. Um, and like I said, he is, uh, more than anything, more than a great colleague, he was one of my very best friends and I'll, uh, I'll miss him. And I do miss him right now very, very much. You essentially were breaking the mold by becoming the first female sports writer at the Chicago Tribune. Do you feel being a knowledgeable woman in the sports field helped you get key quality, uh, insightful interviews? I think, you know, what I tell my students is you have to use whatever you've got. So you could moan and groan if you're, say, a woman and say, well, they won't, you know, some players don't respect me as much or some players don't, you know, have the same rapport with me as they would with a man because I don't have anything, you know, in common with them as a young mother and they're, you know, some guy doesn't have kids or whatever. But, um, but what you do is, is you find that, that common ground with sources. And so I always was able to do that in a way that I think did benefit me. Um, as much as it hurt me, and I think it probably benefited me much more. So, for instance, you know, Brian Erlacher may have been hard to get to, uh, really open up. He was a young father when I covered him. Um, and so we were able to, you know, get to know each other on that level and, and talk about his kids and talk about him as a dad in a way that maybe another wouldn't occur to another uh, male journalist um, and get to know him and, and develop that trust because. That's what being a reporter is all about, is developing relationships, developing trust. And what I said that uh, John Mullen was so good at, um, it's something that doesn't come super easy. Um, so I think women maybe have an innate quality with that, that we do maybe uh, are able to talk to people, uh, you know, to, to, to find that sort of other side of athletes, that vulnerable side, to get them to um, open up a little bit more. Um, could I get interviews more? I, I doubt that very much. I mean, maybe they remember a woman just because we're the only one in the room. So they might remember my name or they might not remember someone else, but I wouldn't say there was a, a noticeable advantage, uh, in, in that regard. Um, but I never, I never dwelled on how it hurt me because it would be a very, very long and very, very unhappy career to, to look at and, and, you know, and, uh, concentrate on the obstacles rather than look at what you do bring to it. I have to ask you this question because I heard from one of your students this story. And when I heard this story, I just laughed really hard. Uh, talk to me what happened between you and Woj. I heard something during when Vinny Del Negro was the coach of the Bulls at the time. Walk, walk me through what happened between you and Woj. And, uh, Oh, okay. Well, that'll be the last time I'll tell a story in my classroom and tell them to keep it to themselves. But anyway, <laughs> um, so yeah, it wasn't much. It was, you know, stuff like this happens. I mean, we were on opposing sides of the, of the story. Um, Paxson and Vinny Del Negro um, made physical contact. Uh, the, Vinny was the coach of the Bulls at the time. Of course, Paxson was a, was a GM. And so I took uh, in my reporting, more of a stance um, toward Paxton's side, and he uh, told the story um, that, that, you know, looked more towards Del Negro's side. Um, it didn't make either one of us any less accurate, um, 
I sort of overreacted to something I thought I, I thought he said about my reporting and I'm not even sure he did. So I fired off. I think I took the first shot, you know, I fired off sort of an, a mean email saying like, why don't you just talk to me about it? Uh, and then he fired off. Yeah. So we, we exchanged some not like unpleasant emails. That's as far as it got really. I think the lesson in it, um, in the, what reason I told the story was because uh, he's obviously, if not the most influential journalist, sports journalist of our generation, he's one of them. I mean, I, I, I'm not looking at his Twitter following right now, but it's many millions more than me, let's just say. Um, he has a reach that is amazing. He has sources that, that just are incredible. He breaks stories in his sleep. So there's no doubting that. Um, was that smart of me to pick a fight with him? Like, no. Um, but the lesson more than that was that years later, when we had some other reason to talk, um, he could not have been more gracious. And, and so, you know, I guess there's a couple lessons. One, don't burn bridges in our business because it's a very, very small world. Most businesses are like that. And ours is no different in our industry. Uh, people you meet in college, uh, you'll meet, you know, you'll see later on down the road, you may work for someone who you didn't like or whatever the case is. Um, it's just not wise to make enemies with anybody and <laughs> much less most influential guy in sports pretty much. So, um, uh, so, you know, I just really respected the fact that he uh, was very, very cool. And, you know, and I apologized for um, some of the things I said and, and he came back you know, I don't remember exactly how it went, but it, but it was just, it was not uncomfortable at all. And so I guess that was probably the lesson is just to think before you type, you know. That's a great story. You're, so I read your book, State, and it's a fantastic book. Congratulations again on that. Uh, your Thanks. book showed the power essentially in women's teams, coaches, and athletes. Even nearly 40 years later, women athletes are still fighting for equality and pay with men athletes. Um, Megan Rapino and Sue Bird have done a great job in advocating for equal pay. What mm -hmm. do you think can help bridge the gap in pay equality between men's and women's sports? Well, yeah, you mentioned, you know, the women's soccer team obviously won a very important um, lawsuit uh, not long ago um, with the U.S. Soccer Federation, um, Venus Williams did great things, um, you know, years ago to make uh, tennis equal pay and grand slams for men and women. Um, so, you know, it's it's little incremental battles. Like, it, you know, is the WNBA going to catch up to the NBA anytime soon? No, like there's there's no way. And so, how is that going to happen? Because uh, it's not a stretch to say that. Um, if Brittany Griner was making more money that she wouldn't have felt the need as does a lot of her colleagues to play in Soviet, you know, to play in Russia rather. Um, and, and, and then get into the um, terrible, terrible situation that she's in. Um, so, you know, but how does, that, you know, how do um, women basketball players, for instance, get more endorsements and get more, uh, you know, their salary, you get, right now, the highest salary in the, the highest salary in the WNBA is in the 200,000s. Um, with every bonus in, in the world, they can maybe get to 500. And I want to say the highest in the NBA is what, like 50 something million? Um, 
So, you know, you need more fans. You need more broadcast time. You need more co media coverage. Uh, you need more companies willing to endorse women. You need people to give the women's product a chance because no, WNBA players could not compete on the same court as NBA players. That does not in any way mean that the WNBA product is not incredible. And most people who would argue with that have never been to a WNBA game and have never seen one in person. If you go see a, a Sky game in person, um, I would venture to say very, very few people would walk away not being entertained and not thinking it's a great product. So, you know, on that level, um, you know, they need to build a fan base. They need better coverage. I mean, Michael Alter, the owner of the Sky, is still fighting for every little bit of coverage. He still can't get. Um, regular stories in the Tribune, and I believe the Sun Times is a paid sponsor um, for their coverage. They do a great job, but um, you know he's had to he's had to think of all kinds of creative ways to to get any kind of coverage, even as good as they are. And of course, they won the WNBA uh, title last season, so it's it's uh, not that easy just to say like what can be done. Um, but uh, if more, uh, you know. Athletes take a stand like uh, Megan Rapinoe, you mentioned, and the women's soccer team, uh, Julie Foudy and her, her group, um, you know, that would certainly help. So women have to advocate for themselves when they can. Uh, and then, you know, growing the game is just going to take some time. Did you think that the WNBA All-Star Game was promoted enough, in your opinion? Um, you know what? Uh, I'm having a little trouble hearing you. One sec. I'm so sorry. I think my earbuds just went out. One sec. Um, for some reason. Okay. Let's try one more time. Oops. Try one more time, Matthew. Uh, did, I, did you think that the WNBA All-Star Game was promoted enough, in your opinion? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, uh, there were people who said they didn't really know. I think, I think um, you know, people who didn't know uh, that, that it was going on maybe weren't looking for it, you know? <laughs> weren't, weren't uh, wouldn't have read it anyway. So I wouldn't blame... Um, you know, blame the WNBA for, for people not tuning in as, as maybe as much as they should have. I'm, I'm sure that they could have done a better job. But, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I wasn't paying a tremendous amount of attention to what their publicity was. So I couldn't really speak to that. So I recently listened to uh, NBA player Draymond Green on his podcast, and he broached this subject called – new media and basically what he says is how the media tries to paint athletes sometimes in a negative light just for clicks just to spark a debate on twitter and amongst media analysts etc cetera, etc cetera, rather than like analyzing the facts and analyzing the game and breaking down each aspect like in the nba and the nfl and breaking down sort of game footage and actually asking thought-provoking questions. People have to make all these sort of hot takes 
And I agree with Draymond to an extent. Do you see any truth to what he said about the current state of media right now and this new media? I mean, look, I'm not going to, you know, sure it was very thoughtful and he meant well and and he thought about it and that's his opinion and he's got every right to it. Um, I don't know that he really understands um, the media, like, you know, to kind of make rash, you know, uh, generalizations is probably, um, you know, never a good idea. But, you know, is he right in the fact that, uh, that, that clicks are important? It's a, it's a different media, certainly, than when I was covering the Bulls, let's say, uh, when we would take our time with stories. And now, you know, obviously, we're tweeting out every second to, to stay current. Um, we uh, are, are writing shorter stories and little nuggets to uh, get people to click on the stories. Does that make it worse? No, absolutely not. You know, it, it gives, I think it gives the audience a tremendous amount of variety and um, it's, it's absolutely thorough. I mean, you can find really thoughtful long form journalism if you want, certainly. It's up to the Dreamont Greens of the world to open up and to be accessible and to give us the time to tell thoughtful stories, you know, to talk to his, to sit down with his beat writers. Does he do that? I don't know. Maybe he does. I don't know him. Um, but, uh, you know, to just say, you know, everything is a hot take, yeah, there's hot takes. And if you don't like it, you know, you don't have to watch that kind of um, TV or read that kind of journalism. Um, it wasn't my favorite thing. I don't think I'd be great at um, maybe covering a beat in the same way that I was, uh, that I excelled maybe back in the day. Um, because, uh, you know, the X's and O's, um, the, the, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna bash advanced analytics. I think they're extremely important. They're great. You know, would it be my strength today? Um, or would it be something that I would rather do rather than, again, the thoughtful, long-form journalism? Probably not. So maybe I wouldn't be the best beat writer because I wouldn't have that full arsenal. But then again, if I was brought up in this day and age, I would be good at it because I would have to be. So um, I think there's a lot of stuff out there on the menu for sports fans and they're very lucky and they can choose what they want. Um, and if you don't want to hear, you know, skip Bayless or whatever, don't. And, uh, and if you don't want to read the ticker, you know, across the bottom of your screen and take that as the news, don't. Um, and if you want to read really thoughtful stuff, go to the athletic, go to any number of newspapers and you'll find great stuff that you can settle down with and curl up with and read. Um, so it's all there. You know, it's just uh, there might be more of it that he doesn't like now. You've seen a lot over your tenure in the sports industry, media, et cetera. What do you think will be the next trailblazing trend in sports, media, anything? This might be a broad question. I apologize. But do you see like the next trailblazing trend in your opinion? Um. I mean, in terms of like social media, I don't, you know, it's not a trend. It's already established. TikTok is, is already um, become in other countries, especially in, in Asia, for example, in other continents in Asia. It's um, a much more um, newsworthy and um, in, in, in a news source for users. 
So whereas people, young people go to Twitter um, for links to other news stories, um, many people in, in Asia will go to in Asian countries, will go to TikTok. So TikTok might become, you know, sort of not replace Twitter, but I think it could um, continue to grow. Um, certainly, <clears throat> certainly YouTube is, is huge and, and continues to be. Um, we're seeing gambling and sports become the multi-billion dollar industry that we always knew it would be. It's not a bad word anymore. It's part of the lexicon. It's part of uh, the coverage. Um, you know, again, you know, in the in the 90s, it would have been uh, sports editors wouldn't have wanted to touch uh, gambling too much. You know, it would be kind of thought of as, as unsavory. And now uh, every single sports fan has their finger, most of us, you know, has their finger on some kind of betting uh, app. So again, don't think that's a trend, but I think it'll only continue to grow as more states legalize gambling. So, I mean, those things, you know, jump to, I haven't, you know, sat down and really, really thought about it. I, for a while, I was worried that storytelling was um, on the decline, that the long form I referred to was not something that readers were looking for. But I think that that's been shot down. And I think, again, if that's what you want, it's there for you. People are hiring, you know, talented journalists are still telling great stories, still being hired to do that. Um, people are still looking for it. So that medium, that genre, if you will, um, is still great. Um, I don't know if you want to throw out anything at me, but <clears throat> those are the things that just immediately jumped to mind. That was, uh, I'm, that was essentially was going to be uh, one of my last questions. What advice would you, do you give to your students, for instance, or anybody that's trying to break into your sort of profession uh, with journalism or, some, or in the media? What's the biggest advice you would give to anybody trying to break into your profession right now? Yeah, I mean, I tell my students um, a lot of things. I mean, one is just to be good, you know, just to be, have high standards. You know, there's a lot of mediocrity in the world and certainly in our industry. And, um, you know, it, it's cliche. It's like work really, really hard and be good at what you do and people find you. Um, so, you know, that's important. I also tell them to look at for jobs with an entrepreneurial eye, which is a little different than when we look for jobs. We would kind of sit there and be interviewed and answer questions and kind of that was that. And now you really have to bring something to a job. You really have to be able to affect a bottom line. And uh, journalism didn't used to be about bottom lines. No one used to know how many people read my bull stories. Now people know exactly the metrics um, for every single stories and, and uh, you know, the algorithms for, for every, everything out there. And so, um, and so you have to have, you have to have a really keen eye of the industry of where you're trying to go and, and who the competition is, what they're doing well, and bring that to an employer. Say, uh, come up with creative new ideas. Come up with, you know, somebody had to, I don't love it, but somebody had to make up, you know, five takeaways from the Bears victory Sunday, you know, and that's something we never did. But there's different, you know, formats for alternative story forms, for example, that's very easy for a young person to invent new new story forms and go to a job and say, hey, this is what I did in college, or this is what I could bring to you, or this is what your competition's doing. I could do that. I could do it better. 
And so that's something a little different. And it's something that I encourage my students and they get jobs and Northwestern, um, they really do get jobs. They don't necessarily get the same jobs that we did, you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago. Um, there's so many more small websites. Um, they start their own. Um, there's, uh, we talked about the betting industry. There's a million betting journalism slash journalism websites that people work for. Um, every niche in the world, you know, can be found. You know, you, you like, uh, you know, uh, advanced analytics and golf, you could find a website for it and, and go to work for them. So there's, a, there's still a lot of opportunities. Um, and because of the athletic, God bless them and may they long live. There's more opportunities for in, in newspapers for young writers, for young journalists that there didn't used to be. Um, so I just encourage my students to just really look and study and be a student of the industry and bring that entrepreneurial um, spirit to, uh, to every interview. That's amazing advice. Uh, lastly, um, uh, Melissa, uh, we have two family weddings coming up. Uh, let's both <laughs> remember what goes on at the family wedding. Let's just, whatever happens at the family wedding, it's just, let's just stay there. It's like, Vegas. okay, well, that's always a good rule. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll try to remember that. Yeah. Well, as I'll, I sip my apple teenies, I will remember that. <laughs> I will uh I'll make sure to remind you at our next uh, family event for sure okay well it's been a pleasure as it always is and it always is a pleasure and thank you so much it's so fun thank you thank you everybody to list for listening to another off the dome podcast have a great day and go get them <laughs>